I want to tell you guys all about Cave Day, which I've been absolutely loving the last few months. I joined Cave Day after reading Atomic Habits by James Clear. You might have even heard me mention Cave Day during the Atomic Habits five-part miniseries. Cave Day are group-focused sessions led on Zoom that focus on monotasks. So have you ever had a task where you constantly feel just distracted by Instagram, your phone, text messages, TikTok? It takes you forever to do something super simple. Cave Day asks you to put your phone somewhere where we can't see it and focus on the one task ahead of you for the period of time you're in the cave. I take it one step further and use one of their weekly planning workshops to decide on my goals for the week breaking them down into monotasks, and planning out my week of caves so I can get it all done. I've never been so productive. You can do one, you can sign up for one, two, or three hour long sprints, depending on the task in front of you. And it doesn't even have to be work. Let it be that yoga session you keep pushing off, or meditating, or making a fun lunch, but have other people there to be accountable. I work from home and sometimes, especially with this podcast, it often feels like I'm doing everything on my own. So logging into these focus sessions, seeing other people work, using cave day strategies and techniques and routines that help me stay on top of it. I feel like it's just a no brainer. Join me today. Try the first month for only a dollar or your first three months for only $40. I get so much work done in the cave without feeling burned out. The link is in my show notes for the discount. Happy Mentor Monday. Welcome to another episode of Mentors on the Mic podcast, your guide to pursuing a career in the entertainment industry. I'm your host, Michelle Simone Miller, a native New York City actress, film off-Broadway commercials, and so forth. And I love talking to wonderful people in the industry. I'm naturally curious. And every week I bring you a director, producer, or an agent, or a network executive, an actor, and just break it down. I want to learn how they started. I want to learn how they got to where they are today. Any tips they've learned along the way? And basically, let's collect some mentors, shall we? Let's learn from people who are doing really cool, interesting things and learn what what they did, what worked, what didn't work. I want to learn it all. And our guest today is amazing. I really, truly appreciate the interview we're about to listen to. Before we get into it, before I introduce him, I just want to remind you, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the podcast. Please like and review it, right? Give it a five-star review. Who wants four stars? Who wants three? Five stars is great. And let me know what you think on the, of the podcast of the episode on Instagram. I'm at, at Michelle Simone Miller and at Mentors on the Mic. And I love talking to listeners. I love talking to you about how these episodes went and what you got from it. So let's get into our guest, shall we? It is always nice to talk to showrunners on the podcast, but Hank and I ended up recording on a specific day, the day the writer's strike was announced. So I'm even more grateful that he carved time out of such a busy day to talk about his career and give advice to all of us. 
And Hank Steinberg's career spans close to three decades. He talks about projects that were scrapped, projects that were rewritten, canned, projects that flourished, that were nominated, that spanned seasons. Hank touches on everything. That includes his first job, his first agent, pitching versus being pitched to tips for actors, tips for writers, writing for networks, being the showrunner on projects like Without a Trace, The Last Ship for Life, finding the time to direct episodes on his projects, and even his new medical procedural doc, which I'm very excited for. This was an incredible hour with just so many stories and advice for all of us. So really, just thank you to Hank. And guys, get ready for a great episode. Enjoy the next 50 or so minutes. Without further ado, here's Hank Steinberg. Hi, Hank. Welcome to Mentors on the Mic. Hey, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I wanted to tell the audience about how we were, we had to reschedule this interview. I got strep throat on the day that we had our interview, so I had absolutely no voice. I normally work anyway, but I was like scratching with my voice. It was awful. But it did give me time to watch 61, which we'll talk about. So I felt grateful. I was like, okay, great. I get to have, this is research. I get to like watch a little bit more of your work. So we'll definitely talk about that. But I always start these interviews with the same question, so I'm not going to stop now. What was your first role in the entertainment? industry? Well, when I first moved out to LA, I was, after, right after college, I was a host at the California Pizza Kitchen. Oh, yes. And I had my name tag on, Hank, Great Neck, New York. So that was my first official LA job. But then I think my first industry job, I was working as the assistant to the assistant for Douglas S. Kramer, who was a television producer who did uh, bunch of Danielle Steele movies. Yes. So it was very highfalutin, as you can imagine. Yes. You know, getting his dry cleaning and stuff like that. Making, paying your dues, essentially. Yeah, a lot, a lot of dues paying. How long did you do that for? Just a couple months, and then I got a, a gig as a set PA on uh, the Mighty Ducks in Minneapolis, which was much more interesting. Yes. Then I, then I was, you know, standing two feet away from Emilio Estevez, you know, in the freezing cold night holding up an umbrella so the snow didn't get in his hair in between takes. So that was fun. That (laughs) was actually really fun. That is fun. And did you do PA work for a while? When did you, did you always know what you wanted to do or where you wanted to end up or just, you kind of were like figuring it as you went along? I look, I mean, looking back, you know, you go through your childhood and I wasn't one of those people said, I want to be a screenwriter when I'm 12. But looking back, I was always writing and Mm. doing creative writing. I did some sports writing in college. And then in college, I Junior year, decided I wanted to be a screenwriter, went to NYU film, film school for just a summer session, and then moved out to L.A. right after college. So I was, yeah, I was pretty, pretty intent and intense about a whole endeavor. Yeah. That's so good. And so when did you become, I think you were an associate producer for a film. I have it out here, but I think it was one of your first things. It was Waiting for Eichmann, I think, or... Eichmann in my hands, I believe. Was it Eichmann that in was, my hands? I think so. The na- that was the that was the name. Oh, of the, the man book. who captured Eichmann. The man who captured Eichmann. There we go. The man who captured Eichmann. The book was Eichmann in my hands. Right. Yes, that was an interesting situation. My my father was a general counsel of this large company that did philanthropic work, and this Mossad agent named Peter Malkin approached my father's company because he thought that he knew where Joseph Mengele was hiding. And he wanted to do a private mission and have it be subsidized by my father's boss. Wow. And my father's boss said to my father, you know, Howard, check this guy out, see if he's real. It turned out he was real. He was the real 
Peter Malkin. He was wow. really the guy that captured Eichmann. We became family friends. I spent a semester in Tel Aviv, and I uh, was pretty close to his daughter, who was my age, and we became very close. And then after college, I wrote a screenplay with Peter based on his book that then subsequently kind of helped get some energy around that project. They ended up throwing out my script and hiring a more experienced screenwriter, but I got an associate producer credit and a little bit of money and kind of got things sort of going for me. And was that your first sort of screenplay that you were able to kind of get some sort of traction from? Yes, I had written a few others that were, you know, not very good. That happens. So you, you can't, yeah. yeah, you can get when to the good stuff. you're in your early stuff. 20s, that's how it's supposed to go. Right. And did you yeah. have representation by then? Did this help you get representation? No, I didn't have representation. It didn't help me get representation. It, it was kind of a bummer because I worked for like a year and a half on the script, and then I got thrown this bone, really. The I finally got representation in like 1995 or 1996. I wrote a spec script called The Duel, which was about Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, which was a subject matter I was fascinated with since I was a kid, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. 20 years later, you know, Lin-Manuel added some music to that yeah. story, and that, that it became a thing. Did you appreciate that musical? Did you like it? And it seeing was, it all yeah, come to life? Yeah, it was genius. There are probably, you know, four people in the world who could have possibly appreciated it more than me. I, I spent like two years work, in my 20s working on the spec for the duel. It got me my agent. I got a bunch of jobs wow. off of it. Then HBO optioned it around 99-2000, and I was doing a bunch of rewrites for HBO on it. So, I mean, I know that subject matter inside and out. It ended up not getting made, of course. But yes, when I saw, when I went to Broadway to see Hamilton, I was like, oh my God, this is like completely, like I know every detail of the story. I knew every creative choice that Lin-Manuel mm. made, like what he cut out, what he added in, why he changed the timeline on things. Like I was like, oh, that was really smart. Yeah, I did the same thing there. Oh, he did something different there. But of course, he had the music. I mean, we can't, it's, it's hard to be. Yeah. I've seen it twice. It's so phenomenal. It just. Yeah, I, I saw it five times. <sighs> Amazing. Including, I spent an obscene amount of money on the last night that Lynn and Leslie Odom and uh, Defeat Diggs, that was their last night, which was crazy. Like, it was the Glitterati were, it was just, it was crazy who was there that night. And we were, like, tracking it on StubHub, like, mm. just waiting for the prices to drop to where it was, like, any were remotely conscionable to spend money like that. And then we ran to the theater. I should have been jealous, but it was so sublime that I just had to, like, bow down to it. So I love that. I And I love thinking that like you have a lot of sort of passions, it feels like, or things that you feel really like, yeah, I guess passionate about. I mean, the next thing I wanted to ask then was about 61, going back to my my entertainment in the beginning of my, my strep-filled days. So I think that 61 came to you while strolling through Monument Park at the at Yankee Stadium. Can you tell us a little bit about that moment and, and how you developed that idea? Yeah, lifelong Yankee fan. You know, I grew up in the you know, learning about baseball in the 70s with Reggie Jackson and Thurman Munson and those championship yeah. Yankee teams. And, and so that was, yeah, one day I was strolling through Monument Park. I saw the plaque about Maris and Mantle, and and I got very curious about it. I did some research. It turned out, once I found out that they were roommates and friends, I was like, oh, there's a story here. Yeah. And I was already working for HBO doing a couple of other projects that were in development. And so I went and had a general meeting with... Colin Callender, who was running the film division in New York at the time. And I actually pitched him a couple of different projects. And he 
And he honed in on that one. And to his credit, because he was British and knew nothing about baseball whatsoever. But he understood the hook of the roommates, the friends, the competitors, the, the idea of the how the media depicts people. And, you know, I was, I was very fortunate to get in there at the right place at the right time. And they put their head of sports, Ross Greenberg, on it as an executive producer. And Ross had a relationship with Billy Crystal. And he... yeah. And that took off. Yeah. Called Billy and I went and talked to Billy and then, you know, we started developing it and came my first produced thing and it really launched me. Did that sort of come up for you at all last year with the whole Aaron Judge in in trying to beat Maris's Maris's record or did that not like was that like a separate part of your life and it just you were you were able to be present in the fact that like you're a Yankee fan, this is fun to watch, this is entertaining, or were you kind of revisiting those days a little bit? Oh, definitely revisiting those days. I had mixed feelings about it like I, I i kind of wanted maris to hold the rec keep the record and hold the record yeah but i love aaron judge and i mean you know, if there's a guy you know i think i feel yeah. the way the maris children do that if there was someone to break it it's great that it was a yankee right great there was also a right fielder so it was you know ruth maris judge all yankee right for there's something something there kind of karmic and cool about that and it brought renewed attention on on roger which was which yeah. was cool and watching 61, I kept thinking of, like, when they panned to, like, Maris's family watching Judge. And I kept thinking mm-hmm. of that when I was watching 61 going, God, this is so crazy, the parallel of, of these things. You never think about it in the moment that you'll be part of someone else's history maybe one day. And you'll be sort of in the field. And how does that, your, you know, how is your experience going through that, you know, years ago, paralleling just the moment of, of then watching someone break that record? So... I don't know, there's something really beautiful about that. So I wondered if, if you revisited that at all last year, which it seems you did. Yeah, there was something about the passage of time and batons being handed across time and the connectivity of that and records are meant to be broken. And, yeah, you know, it's cool when it's all connected in that way. Yeah. Absolutely. And so 61 garnered 12 Emmy nominations, including Best Motion Picture for Television, Best Writing. You were nominated for an award as well for a WGA award. Were you surprised about how crazy that reaction is? I feel like you had done so much prior to 61. Some got some attention, some fell through. It's just, you know, kind of a normal sort of start to everything. But did this sort of surprise you, the fact that it was so well received? Or were you like, no, I knew. I knew the whole time. No, I mean, I... I knew when I saw the, I was on the set for the whole filming, so which was a great experience, That's amazing. Great. I learned a, a ton, and then I saw the it cut together. I thought this is great, you know. Billy did such a great job with it, and but you know you never know what's going to happen, how it's going to be received. But I, I felt really good about it, and then you know it got nominated for so many Emmys, and there I was, the, my first produced, yeah credit ever and I'm in a tuxedo and I'm in the Shrine Auditorium, you know, nominated for an Emmy, you know. Yeah. And the only Emmy I've ever been nominated for. So <laughs> So know, far. Been 21 years later. Yeah, I mean I have a few other things, but yeah. and you know, without a trace did did just did just really fine. well. Did yeah. Just yeah, yeah. fine. But I was like, this is gonna be the first of many, you know, and then, you know, it, it, it was, yes, it was very heady time. And then, you know, the, I got, there was so much heat coming off of the movie yeah. that I had, I had lots of opportunities and that's where without a trace, the opportunity for without a trace came right out of that. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about that. Well, actually before without a trace, you did the TV movie RFK, right? Mm-hmm. That was right around that mm-hmm. time. So were you commissioned to write the movie or did you just write it? How did that kind of work? That was a project that was set up at FX. I was approached by the producers. Mm-hmm. I think I was developing it simultaneous to 61 or right 
right after. I think 61 had been shot and greenlit, so they knew I had that. And then they brought RFK to me. And it was pretty like amazing, you know, at the beginning of my career to kind of like two scripts, both get made. And then without a trace was like a year later. So yeah. it was it was like, oh, my God, everything I do gets produced. And then yeah. <laughs> and then after that, you know, after without a trace, you know, then then I, I got, you know, bit with a little bit of colder, harder reality that it doesn't uh-huh. always work out that way. Well, chronologically, maybe, but you still did quite a bit after without a trace, which we'll discuss. But yeah, I could yeah. I could see what you're saying. It didn't happen like right after the other. Though you did have a couple that were simultaneous, which we'll talk about. So you went on to create the TV series Without a Trace in 2002. I happened to have had David Gray on the podcast, mm-hmm. who was a junior writer on Without a Trace. And so yeah. I asked him, I was like, can you tell me like a wonderful question? I could ask Hank for this. And he's had just wonderful things to say about you and, and working on the show. And he said, hi. And he also suggests that I ask you about the genesis of the show, because he said at the time, people were really trying to crack this missing person, this, you know, a missing person show, and they couldn't really figure out the way to do it, but that you had come up, or your team or whomever, came up with this idea of figuring out who the missing person was in order to figure out where they are, which worked. Can you touch a little bit about on the, the genesis of that show and coming up with that particular format that just proved so successful? Yeah, it came from... I mean, it was the idea was brought to me by Jonathan Lippman, who was running Jerry Bruckheimer's okay. TV department. I actually had I had a blind deal at CBS to do a pilot, and the Bruckheimer people had CSI at CBS, and then one of my agents at Endeavor at the time called me and said, "You know, Bruckheimer people have this idea to do a missing persons show. Do you want to meet on it?" So I met with Jonathan, and we talked about it. And he was fascinated by Chandra Levy, which is the real. Washington, right. D.C. staffer went missing, yeah. you know, in a park in D.C. And then, you know, she was found murdered sometime later. But what Jonathan was fascinated by and I got hooked into was that once she went missing, there was like this excavation of all of her personal life and her secrets and that she had had an affair right. with a congressman. And there was all this salacious stuff. But it was like, did any of that have to do with why she was missing or not? And it was the uncovering of the layers that and how the narrative of who she was seemed inexorably tied to why she was missing. Mm. And that became kind of the template for what we would do so that. And then I was kind of inspired by kind of European films that were slower, a little slower paced with the psychology of of someone who's missing and the mystery of them and their character. And, and this idea that they're sort of like a ghost, you know, one minute they're here, then they're gone. And then using the flashbacks to bring them back into the present, but with each time a kind of different understanding of a different layer of who they are. And then, you know, maybe seeing something at the beginning and understanding it one way. And then throughout the course of the episode, you understand that moment or that behavior in a different way. And now you have more information about it. And so ultimately it was always about the psychology of, of the missing person, which I think, which is what made it really different from other missing person shows, which were much more focused on it's a kidnapping, it's run and gun. Here's a ransom note. You know, where are they? You know, hunt them down kind of thing. And also like heavily focused maybe on the the family, whereas, you know, we put the emphasis on the investigators, but it was really the investigators. It was the, the adage was find out who they are, find out right. where they are. I mean, that was the sort of the punchline of the pilot. In, in the pilot, you always have to have these catchy phrases that kind of, you know, 
frame it for the audience, suck them in and become kind of the mantra for the show. We never said it again, <laughs> but it was there in the pilot. It was a little bit cheesy. You know, the pilot, of course, was like the worst episode we ever did of the show. You know, it was, you know, it was a good pilot, but like, right. that's what happens. If it's a good show, then the pilot should be the worst episode you ever so do. You know, you, get, you, you keep finding the show and it gets, you know, deeper and richer and better. So, and then what we got out of that was the emotion, you know, the show was very, very emotional. It wasn't yeah. just a crime show. You know, if, if we did it right, you know, people should be crying in the last act, you know, when they either find the person or there's a reunion with the family or, or it's a tragic ending, whatever it is, we wanted people to feel something. And I think that's why it caught on. Can we touch, actually, I mean, you touched on it a little bit, so I want to just elaborate on it, the difference between writing a pilot, approaching a pilot, and approaching the rest of the show, obviously. Because there are big differences, and not many people know how to, like, attack a pilot a certain way, you know, because a lot of that, a lot of writing a pilot, I feel like, has to do with being picked up, right? For 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 most of the time, I mean, unless you have a straight-to-series thing. like. But in general, how do you approach a pilot? How do you approach writing that in comparison to the rest of the show when you already have a lot of the characters and the actors you can write off of them i mean there's a natural tension in the construction of the idea of a pilot between the sales it, it's right. being used as a sales tool to get through the process to be sexy enough and grabby enough to make sure you like hook in the network executives right. then when they shoot it and they test it the audiences are hooked in there's a natural tension between that and having it be what you hope is the first chapter of 60 or 80 or 100 episodes and trying to have some discipline about mm. holding some things holding some things back and not just dumping every every cool idea you have into the pilot in an effort to get through the process of getting the pilot picked up many pilots are constructed with some cool cliffhanger or hook at the end of the pilot that sometimes is accelerated maybe farther than you would like to make sure that you have that grab. And then in many times, then episode two is, is many times the hardest episode of, of a series because you have to kind of contend with that thing you did in the pilot to grab people and hook people. And you kind of have to contend with that cliffhanger and then maybe kind of reset and slow things down and unwind it and kind of get it reoriented again. So you can pace things correctly. Right. And that's definitely happened. I, I've had to contend with that. Not without a trace because it was anthological and it was closed-ended. Right. But on every other show I did subsequently, which have serialized, you know, we had a huge cliffhanger at the end of the nine, and and it, and I think in retrospect, we did that to get through the process. And it wasn't it wasn't totally crass, but it was definitely we took something that was in the DNA of the show. We just brought it up earlier than we ever intended right. to to give the to give it a hook, mm. and then we had to contend with some aspects of that that were made it harder for us because it framed the show more like more of a thriller than it really was. Oh, right. And then they started marketing it like a thriller. And then we were really more of a character drama with some, some mystery elements and then it, but it got marketed with an accelerated kind of mystery thriller out front. Mm. So that's, you know, a little bit of a cautionary tale in a way about having, trying to have the discipline, but it's, it's tricky. Because they, they may ask for it. A lot of times they will ask for it. They want to grab the audience. There's so much content now. What I'm describing was in 2007. So imagine now there's so much content. Well, I think we, we, we kind of touched on that, you and I, a little bit. Like that that's something that other shows maybe that, that there's that issue that if it's marketed incorrectly or if it's given to an audience and, or, or trying to attract an audience that it's really not for – 
then you're it's it's it definitely makes it difficult to pick up momentum and to pick up, you know, the audience that it is intended for. So is there any I mean, have you thought about this? Is there any way as like an executive producer, you can combat that or that you can, you know, ask for more creative control in the marketing? Or is that just really in the hands of the network that? Yeah, no, there's really nothing, you know, you could do about that. They, okay. they, 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 they consult you, you know, but you might be able to have a little comment here and there, but yeah. they're pretty much going to do what they're going to do. There. It's the way you know, it, unless it unless you're really like the you know really really 800 pound gorilla but do you feel like that there might be a difference between how networks approach that stuff and streaming in terms of the creative marketing aspect of it and how much the showrunner has control over or no I don't know my suspicion is that you know they're huge companies and they're 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 very largely driven by their PR departments and yeah. market departments. They're going to do what they think they need to do. Yeah. They, they're, the they're like, I, we have a team that specializes on that. Yeah. We'll just, we'll work with them. Thank you yeah. very much. Yeah, exactly. I get it. That makes sense. Okay. Also with um, season two of Without a Trace, you started directing. Was that something that you were curious about beforehand? I don't think you've directed before Without a Trace. Am I wrong? No, you're correct. Okay. Yeah, no, it was a natural progression of show running. You're doing everything except direct. And right. you're telling the director what to do. So then I wanted to do it. It was only a question of, do I have time to do this because when you're directing you you can't really do anything else right. so I, I always had to wait until the end of the season to do it so that everything else was more or less done so like on for life i directed the season finale of of season one so that everything else was cleared off my plate Got it. on last ship I, I picked a couple of episodes in between but i had a co-creator got it showrunner who was who could keep an eye on the other stuff while i while i got sidetracked with that interesting but yeah directing is the most fun. That sounds fun. Well, because with your show running, you're doing six different things at once. You're yeah. writing, you're writing, you're in the editing room, you're in the set, you're in post, you're looking at casting. And then when you're directing, you're just doing that. So it's Which kind of a form of meditation. <laughs> so very, funny. very anxiety producing, right. stressful. Oh my God, do we have enough time to get this scene? Right. But it's, it's, you know, it's kind of, you know, you're just doing that. Thing. It's different issues to focus on. That's all. You've been juggling all these other things, and now you're just focusing on new problems, essentially. Yeah. But it it feels a little bit more targeted. That's and it's nice, probably for the the cast. I imagine to have you as a director because there used to a lot of visiting directors. There used to a lot of directors that are there for a week, and then they have a new one for the following week. But they know you. They've... Oh, the the cast is like. Well, that's the best thing about directing in your own show is like the crew is like completely on their a game. The cast mm. is completely fired up, totally present, knows their lines, ready to work. Like they're definitely, you know, it's like walking into the biggest home court advantage, you know, you can imagine with an infrastructure that's completely there to support you. So, yeah. Well, speaking of actors, I'm an actor myself. There's a lot of actors that listen to this podcast. So how is it different when you're, you know, we were talking a little bit, we touched on writing a pilot and then obviously the rest of the show, you have that cast in place, right? Most of the time when you write a pilot, you might have an idea or a couple ideas for characters. But then as you're writing the rest of the show, you're thinking about how these actors inform the character, right, that you're writing for, right? You might take some little things that they do, little things that they are good at, maybe add them in. Do you ever do that? Do you have any advice for actors in approaching auditions for these type of characters or once they're in them, how to make sure that they give enough to the writers, make everything come to life? Any advice on any of that? Well, there's just the old saying, you know, there's no small parts, only small actors. You know, on a couple of my shows, there are people that start out with one or two lines, 
and and in one one instance actually became a series regular by season three. Amazing. And it was because they just came and did their work and like nailed that scene and they had a certain quality. You know, there was a reason we cast them to do the role where they had a couple lines. And then they popped and it was like, let's write more for him. Let's write more for him. And then kept working. And then first, then he was, then he was a recurring guest star. And then by season three, he was a series regular started out with, you know, two lines. So it's just come in, be committed, you know, stay in the truth of what you're doing. Be confident you were cast for, for a reason. And if you're in an audition, just kind of bring your essence or, you know, your interpretation of, of the character have a point of view for sure. If it's a small part and you're brought into an audition, have a point of view, you know, and, you know, take a chance to bring something, bring something interesting to it. And you can even have two different takes on it, you know? Yeah. I'm going to do this that way. And then you can always say to the cast director, you know, I, I have another version of this. Can I show you? Like, right. you, you f- feel, feel okay to take command of the room. You know, you are auditioning, but for the two or the five minutes you're in that room, it's your space. Right. And, you know, take ownership of it in terms of the work you're presenting. Yeah. Don't take ownership of it in terms of asking the cast and director a lot of questions for 10 minutes or the right. producer. If they're there, don't do that. Yeah. But when it, when you're doing the work, that's, that's your space and it's your time to work. And if, like, you fuck up your line, you know, just say, hey, can I take that again? You know, it's, a, it's fine. Yeah. You know what I mean? I actually, like, I kind of respect when, when someone does that and isn't so nervous that they flub their way through it. Yeah. They go, you know what, I need to take that again. I'm like, okay, they're confident enough. Yeah, they You're know. You're taking command yeah. of the space. Yeah, they know. Their people make a mistake. It's fine. Like, we know. We're not going to judge you on that. Take mm-hmm. it back. Do it again. And, you know, if you come in and you go, you know what, I have, I have, I, I took a very particular point of view on that. I have another version of it. Can I show you? That's great, because then you go, oh, okay, this person, they can do that, they can do that. Oh, that's great. So when you're, I mean, obviously, as a showrunner, you're just, like you said, you're doing a million things. You're constantly being sort of focusing on so many things. How do you watch the casting tapes that a casting director sent you? Do, is it usually, like, that spare 15 minutes? Are you able to, like, how do you take time to carve out and go, okay, for the next episode these are the type of these are the this character or this actor this actor how do you how do you find that time to to cast the the next show the next episode i used to go to all the casting sessions of without a trace wow. I, I treated the, my first season i would sit through hours of casting because i was so green i mean that's what i did on the pilot but on the pilot like that's that's all that's happening you know right you're you're, you're, you're shooting in five weeks you're, there's nothing else really to do so you sit in hours of casting and then at some point i go i can't do this i can't <laughs> be three hours a day watching every casting session so they put things on film and then then they would send me all the, and then eventually i would graduate to having someone on my staff like okay you look at all the tape and pick your top three, five choices, and then show those to me. And so now that's how it goes. And now no, no one really goes to the casting sessions except for the casting director. And if you have a casting director that you trust, you know, he or she will pick three to five choices, you know, especially for guest stars on it's episode seven. It's a guest star. Give me three choices. Okay. You know, if it's a pilot, you know, maybe give me seven choices. And then you just, whenever you have spare time, you sit and you watch, but it's, it's, it's definitely more of a streamlined 
process. That's excellent. Yeah, that really helps. I mean, I, I interviewed a few casting directors on the show, including Julie Schubert, who you've worked with quite oh, often. Yeah. And I know that like for every showrunner, there's this sort of different relationship of how many people that they like to see per role. And so it's it's nice to know what works for you. Yeah. If you trust your casting director, then, you know, you, you don't need get, to see that many. Get, get that streamlined. And then, and then a lot of times once I'm in production, like I like to be the last one to weigh in. So like mm. uh, I'll wait for the, the director of the episode. And if it's not, if I'm not the writer, the writer, maybe to give me their picks. Okay. So then if it's four choices and both the director and the writer agree, I'll just go right to their pick. Okay. And then if I like their, like their pick, I'm like, good. What if you don't Depend- like their pick, Hank? Then I look at the others. Got it. And then I, and then I say, do this one. Fair enough. That's the showrunner. That's that's why you want to be a showrunner at a certain or, point. Or if I'm in a if I'm in a better mood, I say, hey guys, have a look at this one. I, I think this one could be good. And then they should get the hint. If I'm a point. little more rushed and not in a good mood, I go do this one. Got yeah. it. Fair. Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay, and then in 2006, while Without a Trace was running, you created the show The Nine, which we talked a little bit about. You worked with your sister, KJ. So how was mm-hmm. that? How was working on two shows at the same time? How was having KJ on the on the project with you for that season? I mean, that was it was great. I was transitioning off of Without a Trace, okay. so I was ready to be move on to something new. It yeah. had been like five years, you know. Yeah. I mean, if you include the pilot and development, it had been which essentially five, five years of being on the same project. You know, with 70 episodes in or something like that. So I was ready to move to something else. Did you still watch every episode of Without a Trace when you left it? I watched for about half a season. Okay. And then after that, I had to let go. Fair. You can't, because you're, you're probably, you know... Not criticizing everything, but you're like, oh, um, you can't turn your brain off. It's not like it's a show that's entertaining you. You're probably constantly going, you're I would have criti- done that differently. I would have. You're criticizing everything. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you're criticizing everything. So, yeah. And it was like, it's like your baby and you got to, you know, other people are running it and you just kind of got to like. Trust let that. Go. Let, let it go. Let go. Let go. And then how was working with KJ? That was great. I mean, we had, you know, we're, we're very close and. You know, it was a great idea. We just had a great symbiosis and, you know. Would you work with her again on a project? Or I, had, hope so. I hope yeah? so. We, we keep ending up at different studios, so we're, like, not allowed to. Right. You know, I'm here and she's there. I, she's on This Is Us. I'm at Sony. So, you know, I, I, I hope to. It's cool that both of you are doing this. You know, like, that doesn't happen, I think, that often that a, you have a brother-sister dynamic where – they're both like fully in creating, sh- you know, working on shows, creating, and yeah, awesome. she's listen, she's brilliant. She's 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 younger than me by three and a half years. So she followed. She went to Northwestern to be an actress. She came out to L.A. She lived on my couch for the first six months. You know, she she ended up. She was a brilliant writer always, and after the acting, which is so mercurial, whimsical, yeah. hit and miss, Crazy. I said, I said, you really got to start writing. Mm. You know, because you can that that you can control. The, the acting, who knows? A hundred percent true. So she started writing, got a career, got a job. I hooked her up with, with my agent, who she's still with, and she's you know gone on to have amazing success. So, did you give her any tips on writing, like anything that works for your writing process that you were like, you know what, I recommend this to her, and it worked, and then you can recommend it to all the writers in the audience. I don't think I gave her any generalized tips but you know we we give each other our work and oh, nice. you know give each other notes and stuff and and help talk each other through stuff so yeah i'm sure there are particular things on particular projects that you know i mean she's like done six years of this is us so like i will definitely is- call her when it comes to like how do i do this soapy character thing you know 
So you guys have developed a little like expertise in different things. So you can touch each. Yeah, day. it's yeah. a little bit of our own personal writer salon. Nice. That's hey, that's fantastic. That's so, so lucky. And then, what's your particular writing process? How do you sit down and just write? You know, I've talked to different writers on the show. I've read books about it, but a lot of times, you know, I, I remember Shonda Rhimes in her book said that like writing is like a marathon. The first three miles are like terrible and like feel like you're just running through mud and then at some point you get into it and it's just like please don't bother me because it took so long to get through those first initial miles is it similar for you is it very different how's your writing process yeah I think putting fingers on the keyboard you know with a blank screen is always is always a little bit scary I kind of have a different process depending on the project but usually I have a, some sort of outline and I've talked it through, Okay, you know, development people in my company. And so once I get it started, it's, it's, it starts to move. Yes. I mean, I agree with Shauna that at the beginning, it's always a bit of a, a slog and the first draft, you just kind of want to get out, Yeah, take a breath, maybe reread it in a week and have other people comment. And then the second draft is when it really starts to kind of I think you start to go deeper and find stuff and you start to feel like, like this could be something, but that's actually another good tip I feel like people could take from that, which is just get through the first draft. Absolutely. Yeah. That's hard. That's hard. Do you find did you find that hard in the beginning when you were writing? Just like not over over critiquing yourself as you go, not self-editing, just be like, get this out. You'll be able to like edit differently when you come back to it as a but at least you'll have something of substance to edit as opposed to never really quite finishing because you're editing as you go. Yeah. So you have sort of a saying agree agree with yourself it's gonna be bad. You know, it it won't really be bad, but it won't be where you want it to be. But just make that agreement. Just get it out. Get it down. Have something to react to. It's funny. There's something psychological for me, even if I'm doing cards on a board and and I'm working with my guys in my company, you know, I'll have somebody put it in some sort of very loose outline form with at least with like slug lines for the scenes and then a description of kind of whatever I've said about the scene. And that already psychologically, like opening up that file and just having it not be blank, but right. having it say fade in exterior Smart. wherever with some description, even though I still have to write it. Yeah. It's like, oh, I, I can see I'm writing within something. Got and that it. already psychologically is super helpful. And yeah, I mean, you wouldn't think, oh, writing exterior garage day or whatever is going to be that taxing, but it's like having it, having it there and seeing it sort of, Oh, I've already thought about this. These are the scenes that exist. Now I just have to go in it. That's actually the fun part. So that helps. It's not from scratch, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. You're sort of fooling yourself. You're avoiding that white page on your screen. Is it different with a screenplay where you're just like, I have this idea for a screenplay or a movie. And I like, I, like I now have a white sort of Paid like screen in front of me, or do you always approach the outline first and have some sort of the same sort of? There have been system? a few occasions where I've just wanted to write purely from instinct, where I start with a, a, a blank page and just sort of discover. Mm-hmm. But I know that then that's really going to be a first draft that's bad. Okay. You know, that's really going to be kind of a me, you know meandering something. So that that sort of takes place of that's cool of of conversing, putting cards up. Usually, I'll do the trying to figure the stuff out first. Okay, one more question for the writers. For writers in the audience who want to work on a TV show one day, right? What are your recommendations for them? What are things that stand out to you when you read like sort of a young writer's work and you're like, hey, they want to be 
what is the first thing on the on the totem pole? An assistant or a story editor or something like that? Like, what, when do you, do you, you know, what do you recommend for them to do or to showcase if they're starting out? It's really very, very simple. Ready. And I will not be the first person to say this, but I will reiterate it. Write something from your personal experience. Mm. Write something that you know that's specific, that's unique to you that shows like sort of your voice and your point of view on the world. Do not try to emulate someone else's voice or write something that you think fits, fits neatly into some category. Nobody wants to see that from a young writer and you probably won't do it very well, honestly. Fair. You know, when you get to be really, really seasoned later, then you can start to go, you know, I'm going to do a genre thing, but I have my 10,000 hours and I've studied genre. So now I can write outside. You can of break my, the rules. I can write, write outside of my experience because I, I can inject whatever into this mm-hmm. thing. But you have to take what you know. Even I would t- tell you, and it doesn't mean that you have to literally write about your own life. But you really have to dig into some dynamic or theme or something that that you know about. So I'll give you an example. So when I first started out, I tried a bunch of genres. Like I tried a comedy, I tried an action thing, and they were all really generic and not, you know, I didn't have level craft yet. So I couldn't even like do a a B plus version of an action movie yet. You know, I did a C minus version of an action movie. So, and it was not interesting. It was okay, but it wasn't so, so the duel, so you, so you think that's the script that broke me out, like, right. right? How, what, what the hell do, you know, Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton in 1700s, you know, have to do with 25 year old Hank Steinberg in 1995. But the thing that I hooked into that, you know, anyone who saw the play hooked into was I hooked into this idea of male friendship and rivalry and which was later in 61 right which was also explored in 61 exactly and that was a recurring theme at the beginning of my career there was a few other projects in development that also were in that in that zone so that's something that i knew a lot about from my male friendships got it so i took that personal experience that that thing of friendships and but that are alpha you know I have qualities you, you know, you want, you have qualities I want, we're attracted to each other, but we also kind of, it's, they're frenemies, you know, male frenemies, right? That becomes kind of a exploration of what is friendship and what are the reasons that people are attracted to each other. And, and then the sort of tragedy potentially in, 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 in the duel, the tragedy of they could have been friends, but they pushed each other apart. In 61, they could have pushed each other apart, but they came together. But So different ending, but very similar theme. Yeah. Totally different context. So hmm. very personal to me from my experience of what I knew. I just sort of superimposed it into a different setting. So that you can do, but you just have to make sure that you're coming from something that's inside you that you want to talk about and not try to write to the marketplace. There'll be a million people aiming at the same target if you go for a target in the marketplace. So you've got to go into something that's really specific to you. Now you might be able to find something less superimposed than what I did. You know, it might be about 
you and your 20 something friends in Brooklyn, as long as you have a particular, like, you know, just don't tell me about how you have breakfast and coffee and, but like, you have to find a story, but you've got to go inside yourself. It has to come from a real place somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I get that. And then when you're reading potential new writing from people who want to be joining your, your writer's room, what are you reading exactly? I mean, I do, they don't really do spec scripts anymore, right? Or do they, or do you read... Yeah, people do. Yeah, people do specs. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If they've if written an episode of another television okay. show, that won't tell me very much. So right. I need to see something. I need to see something original. A pilot, a play. Okay. Something. Got yeah. it. Good to know. A, fe- a feature. Yeah. We only have a couple more minutes, and you have so much more in your life. But I knew this would happen because I'm just interested in, in a bunch of the stuff. So, you know, you worked on Dawn, which we won't talk about. The Last Ship. I want people to find these things and look through them, and apologize for not going into them. But for Life was a powerful show, inspired by the true story of Isaac Wright Jr., who was imprisoned for a crime that he did not commit, and he then became an attorney while incarcerated. So, how did that project come about? And just you know, the short version of that, just because I'm curious and I loved the show and I'm sure a lot of people did who are listening. Can you just touch anything on that? That project was brought to me by my dear friend, Allison Greenspan, who tragically passed away a couple of years ago. She and I had known each other from Penn and from early days in our career where I worked with Robert Zemeckis when she was working for him. And she brought it to me. She was working with Doug Robinson. They had control of this project and along with 50 Cent. And I heard the pitch and it just clicked. It clicked and, you know, away we went. That doesn't happen often, I imagine, right? None of your other stories, it seems like it just clicked and something like someone someone pitched you something and it clicked. I think a lot of the origin stories of your projects seem to be a lot of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time that you come up with it or there's something in something that in a story that you've read or whatever that like makes you want to do it. But what does it make? What is it about that pitch or just great pitches in general that sparks something within you? Or is there something that like you can't really even put a finger on? It's just something magical that comes up when someone pitches you a project and you're like, yes, I want to well, do that. I, short, I shorthanded it when I first heard it. I knew it was a good idea, but I couldn't figure out how to crack it. Mm. And I, I put it away for like three months. I think I actually told wow. them, I don't, I, I don't have it yet. And then I sat down to meditate one day. And I literally, as I was meditating, in the middle of my meditation, I saw the first five minutes of the pilot. Wow. In my, in my head. Yeah. And I called them right after meditation. I think I have it. Oh. We, we met. And it, yeah. So it, it is sometimes magic or you know, something out of body. something, something out of body, you know, your unconscious emerges, whatever. You know? Do you meditate so, every day? I try to. I try I, to. I, as I, well. I wish I, I wish I, I wish I, I was as, as disciplined about it as I should. I do. I feel the same it, it definitely way. Helps. Definitely do you do helps. morning pages? I don't know if you've heard of the artist's way. Do you do morning pages? <laughs> no, Fair. no, I should. I'm too anxious to kind of get to work. Yeah. You know, my, I, tr- I tend to like decompress in the afternoons when my creative brain is sort of frying. That's when I go like work out and try to do other stuff. Fair. Hey, work out is a form of discipline as well, you know? Yeah. All right. So I kind of have to end this, but I do want to ask a little bit about projects and development just to touch on it. Anything that you're working on now that you're excited about that well, you can share uh, with yeah, us? Yeah, I have a, you know, straight to series order with Fox called Doc, which is based on Italian show of the same name. It sounds great. I'm really excited about it, especially since it's a medical procedural, which like people might, you know, feel like there's a lot of, but I watch almost all of them, I think, if they're good. So, or at least if they're good to me. So I'm very excited about it. Do you know if it's going to be done in New York? 
It's going to be filmed in Toronto. Okay. It'll be on Fox. Hopefully in the fall, we'll see what happens with the writer's strike. Right. Yeah, it's a medical procedure, but it has a great character hook, a, re- a really great character hook. It's about this doctor who is the chief of internal medicine, and she has a car accident. She loses eight years of her memory. And so she wakes up and she's lost all of this time and many, many and her daughter things, is, things, things have her, changed in yeah, her life. Her nine-year-old daughter turns 17, all of a sudden 17 to her. So yes, sounds interesting. And she, and she discovers, you know, she was happily married. Now she's divorced. Mm. She's like, has a whole different, her, her life is totally, totally different than what she last remembers. So it's, it's almost impossible for her to acclimate it and figure out how do, do I want to get my memories back? You know, mm. all, all that stuff. So it's a very cool twist. She now can no longer be the chief of internal medicine because she's brain damage and lost eight years of medical knowledge. So she has to go back to the beginning and come back as like a lowly intern and try to pass her medical boards. And so oh, all, wow. the pe- all the people that she was in charge of, who she was really hard on and difficult with, who didn't really like her now are above her. And she's coming into this environment and doesn't remember how, how, you know, how it got this way, like what she did to these people. So it's kind of a rebirth story or second chance story and inside a medical procedure. So that's that's what attracted me to it. It's it's got a very cool really interesting. And and do you have the pilot already done? Because it was straight to series. So you might not we have two episodes. We have two episodes on a Bible and then we have a writer's room going with the rest. So excellent. You have a female showrunner, which is very cool Mm -hmm. too. And one more thing about all of that, which is how often and you kind of touched a little bit on it when you were like pitching sixty one, that there are a lot of projects sometimes you have to have in in the scheme of things because unexpected things happen or people say no to one and they take the other how important is it for you to have like a lot of a lot of different baskets if you will, a lot of eggs in different baskets that's whatever that expression is yeah i mean i have this thing where i i, I always try to have three or four things okay. going because you just don't know which one's going to emerge right and, and it often ends up being the one that you least expect it's going to emerge is the really? one that somehow pops the top of the Top of the thing. Yeah. How's that feel for you then? Because sometimes you'll have your favorites and then like the third or fourth one's the one that's chosen. You're like, all uh, right. Yeah. That happens a lot. Yeah. That happens a lot. Most of my favorite projects are sitting on a shelf, actually. Mm. So, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm proud of everything I've done, but my favorite, favorite, favorite ones, except for the nine, I think. I had 61. 61 of the nine were real, real passion projects. Without a Trace was like a great idea and a great piece of business with Bruckheimer coming after yeah. CSI. And then I made it my own, but it was not like the thing I was it's dying your first to do. Choice. And then it just, but that's how life is. I wasn't even yeah. dying to do it. It was the least important thing I was doing out of four projects. It jumped to the top wow. and then it changed my life. So, you know, that's how life is. So you can't fight it anyway. Cause you no, know, you can't. it you might be life changing. Yeah. Life tells you what it wants you to do. And do you have a film in your back pocket? Do you have a screenplay that you're sitting on that you're just like, Waiting I, have a bunch of, I have a bunch of screenplays, but, you know, the movie business has changed so much and it's not a Marvel movie. So, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do with it. Hard. So, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm focused on TV. That's where all the action is. So that's fair. All right. Well, I'm going to end it there because thank you. Thank you so much. Really. Yeah, was, I appreciate great, all the questions. Great, great to talk to you. Thank, thank you. you. And have you a wonderful day and we'll, we'll touch base soon. Sounds great. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Mentors on the Mic. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend in entertainment you know would love it. 
Let me know what you've learned or what stayed with you on our Instagram at mentors on the mic. I love reading your messages. You can also find me at at Michelle Simone Miller on Instagram. On both accounts, I'll be sharing even more information about our mentors. Talk to someone about what you learned today who would really appreciate it and send them the episode. Also, if you love the show, please go ahead and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really makes a huge difference in growing this. It makes it easier for people to find our podcast. And I love reading your reviews. So thank you so much. And I'll see you next week. 